Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing in our series, Remembering the Reformation, with message entitled Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Authority is always a big issue. You know, if a man stands in the street calling us to pull over our automobile, well, we're going to tend to notice if he simply has street clothes on or he has a police uniform. The second speaks to us of authority, and we're far more likely to comply. Or when I get a census form in the mail, which takes me some time to fill out, I respond because the government tells me to do it. I feel very differently about a marketing survey that gets sent to my house. I comply when there's authority. I mean, I could go on and on. In spiritual terms, authority is also very important. For instance, during Passion Week, after Jesus had chased out the money changers, according to Matthew 21, verse 23, we read, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? See, that question is not insignificant. Should anyone have the right to disrupt the temple, set up their own teaching booth? Well, no, that would result in chaos. The question is one of authority. And so the question of authority was a very significant problem during the time of the Reformation. According to the Middle Ages Catholic Church, authority flowed directly from Peter himself. Catholicism thought that Matthew 16, verse 18, settled the issue for all times. It says, For I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, from that text, it was supposed that Peter was the foundation of the church. But with that, a whole awful lot of assumptions followed. After Peter had died, the church taught the authority of Peter was conferred to the next Christian leader, who was also the bishop of Rome, and then he became the next rock of the universal church, and so on and so on, all the way down to the present. And so it was thought that Jesus conferred his authority on Peter, Peter conferred his authority on a man named Linus, and every succeeding generation had one man who served as the vicar of Christ on earth. But with each succeeding generation, more authority was given to the Pope. By the time of the Reformation, it was thought that the Pope had the final authority to interpret the Bible, that he was the final interpreter of church history, and that he even had the authority to formulate new doctrines. You know, furthermore, the, the Pope had the authority over the cardinals. The, uh, the cardinals had the authority over the archbishops, who had authority over the bishops, who had authority over the local priests. And that's how the Roman church understood the matter of authority. What made a church legitimate is that it was governed by her lawful pastors, meaning that they were appointed by the church hierarchy, and that made them lawful. Now, we might ask, well, what's the alternative? I mean, fast forward to our day in which many churches are governed by a denomination in which pastors typically go through the process of ordination, and that determines their suitability for ministry. But who gave those denominational leaders authority to determine who's fit to serve in the Church of Christ? And to press the matter further, there are in our day many independent churches. I mean, what's their authority to speak on behalf of Christ? And for some people today, it's all a kind of a free-for-all. Whoever has the best entrepreneurial skills simply leads a movement. 
The authority derives from charismatic energy, and it's sometimes argued, well, that must be the authority of the Holy Spirit. But how do we know whether this has anything to do with Christ? Is this legitimate authority? So authority is always the question. See, when the Reformation leaders broke from the Catholic Church, the authority of any local church became a key and a fundamental issue. Terry Johnson points out that when Luther's opponents argued with him, they almost never answered Luther on the basis of Scripture. Instead, they appealed to the authority of the Pope, the important church councils in history, church fathers, the traditions of the church. For them, that was authority. But Luther, even while he didn't denigrate those matters, Luther felt that none of those things were the final authority. Here's what he said, and I quote, A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. And that was the defining issue of the Reformation. Who has authority over the church and over the faith of people? To that, Luther and all the other reformers answered, Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone has the final authority over the life, the faith, and the future of God's people. Let me try to illustrate that. It was the year 1518, the year after Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, that a man named Ulrich Swingley became the priest of a church in Zurich, Switzerland. That church was the most important church in Switzerland, and the head priest there had a great deal of influence over the religious life of the entire country. In his interview for the job, Zwingli made it clear that he would do something altogether radical. He would preach through the Bible, verse by verse, one chapter following the next. So on January 1st, 1519, Zwingli stood in the pulpit in the Grossminster Cathedral and began to preach verse by verse through the entire book of Matthew. And then he did something just as bold. He made the verse by verse preaching of the Bible the central focus of each church service rather than the Mass. Well, it seemed outrageous, but that led to a certain result. Zwingli finished Matthew and just kept going, preaching verse by verse through the entire New Testament so that by 1523, the city council of Zurich voted to leave the Roman Catholic Church. They would be governed not by the Pope or church councils. They would be governed by a careful and thorough study of Scripture. Indeed, verse-by-verse verse Bible exposition became the hallmark of all Reformation churches. It was believed that this was the true authority of Christ over his church. And just to make matters plain, the idea was not that the Reformers spoke topically, you know, picking a topic and then finding a Bible verse to support that. Rather, it was believed that careful verse-by-verse verse analysis of the Scripture, making its meaning plain, was the center of church worship. See, in our language, strong exegetical methodology or interpretation of the Bible based on its plain meaning, paying attention to the grammar and the history of the text and striving to find the Bible's overall unity, that was the heart of the Reformation. Now, were they right to do this? I have on two occasions here at Back to the Bible Canada done a study on why we know the Bible to be the infallible and the inerrant Word of God and the sole authority of the Christian life. Now, I'm not going to repeat myself here, but if you're interested, you can receive those matters from Back to the Bible Canada. But let me fast forward to the present time. 
I think that today the most pressing matter before the church is the matter of the authority of Scripture. Not long ago, I was speaking with a pastor from a, from a certain denomination who told me of the process of receiving permission to preach in his denomination. He told me that without a Bible in hand, the person being tested could be called upon from memory to give an outline of any book of the Bible on the spot. Now, I expressed my surprise, and then this brother asked me, why would you allow any man in your pulpit who has not demonstrated that he's a master of the Word? See, indeed, I believe that the question of sola scriptura, scriptures alone, needs to be recaptured in our day. The only authority that any church can claim, indeed, the only legitimacy that any church can claim, is that she, the local church, is governed by Scripture. Second Timothy is the last book written by the Apostle Paul. He writes the book to his disciple Timothy, fully aware that he's about to die. In chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells Timothy that he knows that the time of his departure has come. He knows that he's going to be executed. He says, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. And so we might ask, what would Paul want Timothy to know? Would he want Timothy to be an apostle with the same authority that Paul has? And the answer to that is an unequivocal no. Instead, we have the great apostle commanding his disciple, and I'm reading here from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. There we read, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And that, I think, is at the heart of the Reformation. It was to recover the very command that the Bible gives to its leader. Your job is not to come up with something new but to become a master at understanding, explaining, and applying the Bible to the lives of people. Indeed, by extension, it's the call for all of God's people to learn the Bible for themselves. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, has the authority over the church. Well, we'll hear more from Dr. Neufeld in just a moment. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? These are questions that live in the minds of many young adult Christians in our culture. Well, Dr. Neufeld says, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they are asking about gender identity. Well, we're responding to that need by hosting InDoubt's first InDoubt Live event about sexual identity. InDoubt Live will include guest speakers Dr. John Newfeld, leader of Ethos Ministry, Pastor Dave Johnson, InDoubt's own ministry leader Isaac Dagno, and Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada. And the evening will also include an open forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. So if you're a young adult or part of a young adult Christian group, join us for In Doubt Live, Sexual Identity, happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 at the Clova Theatre in Surrey, British Columbia. In Doubt Live is free admission, and you can discover all the details at live.indoubt.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. (music) 
theologian and author J.I. Packer has written, the authority of scripture was the formal principle of the theology of the Reformation, determining its method and providing its touchstone of truth. But justification was the material principle determining its substance. Now, when Packer spoke about the formal principle, he was talking about what Terry Johnson calls the rules of the debate or the final authority in the debate. In other words, when it came to justifying a split from the Catholic Church or when it came to abolishing the mass, the reformers appealed to Scripture. That's why, for instance, Ulrich Swingley decided to make a point in Switzerland. He did something that really shook things up. It was a Friday during Lent in which the Roman church had ruled that it was a sin to eat meat. Zwingli joined a group of citizens in his city and sat down on that day and ate, I think it was, two sausages. Because for Zwingli, if the scripture commands it, well, we have no freedom, but we must obey. But if the scripture does not command it, we're allowed to use our free conscience and make choices for ourselves. See, the formal principle was always the Scripture. When there was a debate, one appealed to Scripture. But the material principle, well, that's the key issue on which everything hangs. No one fought a Reformation so that sausage makers could sell sausages during Lent. That was never the issue. It's not worth the fight. The issue, the thing upon which everything hung, has been called sola fide, or faith alone. John Kelvin said, justification by faith is the first and keenest subject of the controversy between us. And Martin Luther said, this article is the head and the cornerstone of the church. You know, as I think about this, I'm reminded of two of my own experiences. One's an experience I had some years ago. I had just gotten home to my wife in my bed and it was two o'clock in the morning. The afternoon before, I had been invited to have supper in a Roman Catholic monastery, and it was followed by a time to meet with young Catholic seminarians who were studying for the priesthood. We were scheduled for about an hour, but as I've said, the conversation went on and on deep into the night. The conversation that night was intense, it was respectful, it was forthright, and if you will, with no attempt to hide our differences or paper over our disagreements. At one point in the discussion, one of the young seminarians said to me, did you know that justification by faith is not even found in the Bible? See, I couldn't believe that he would hand me such a slow pitch. And as I was rearing back to hit that one out of the park, the priest who was in charge said to the young man, he stepped in front of him and he looked at him and he said, you know, I don't think you're going to win this one, so let's not go there. But I wanted to go there because, in my opinion, there is no more important issue to talk about. Remember, I said that when talking about justification by faith, that I have two memorable experiences. The second came is, in one summer, I decided to read through the entire Roman Catholic Catechism. You know, I must say, it was really a delightful experience. Some parts of it really were quite rich, and some truths that expressed really did bring tears to my eyes. Now, of course, on some issues, I most profoundly disagreed, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. For me, after I was done, I was left with a sense of unease, and for a while, I struggled to get a handle on it, and then it came to me. After reading it, I was left with no hint to the most important fundamental question that any human being can ask. What was that question? Well, you remember the incident described in Acts 16. 
Paul and Silas had been put in prison, and it's about midnight, and they're praying and singing hymns to God, and there's an earthquake in the city. It was so great that the prison doors were broken open, and all the chains that bound them were broken off from the wall. Supposing that his prisoners had escaped and and realizing that the Roman penalty for letting your prisoners get away was always death, the jailer drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And realizing that they were about to witness a horrible tragedy, Paul cries out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. See, the jailer realized that these men had not escaped because of their concern for him. Furthermore, he had heard them singing praises to Jesus that night, and so he called for a torch to be brought, and when he saw that no one had escaped, he he knew that he could trust these men. And so he fell down before them and asked, what must I do to be saved? Now, I have to say, there is no greater question than that one. Years ago, while I was pastoring, I, I came upon a Chinese woman in the sanctuary of the church. She was obviously distressed, for she'd been crying, and I, and I sat down beside her and explained I was a pastor here, and was there something I could do for her? She told me that for years now she'd been searching for God, but she was distraught. The more she sought God, the more she became aware of her own sin and her offensiveness to God, and I remember her question, is it possible for someone like me to know God, and if so, how do I do that? What must I do to be saved? You see, when that kind of question is asked, well, all the world has to stop because what's said next are the most important words that can come out of our mouths. If the answer is, well, you need to get away and ask God, or maybe you need to visit a confessional, or maybe you need to afflict your body, or maybe you need to fast for a week, or maybe you just need to turn off your TV and get away from all the distractions, or maybe something else, well, are we right when we say that? And the answer is, no, we're not right. And that, said the Reformers, is the fundamental reason for our dispute. Listen to what Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer that night. It's recorded in Acts 16, verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Place your confidence in Jesus. And this is what you must do. If you do, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be made right with God. You'll escape the judgment that's to come. Now, historically, that's been called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, what does that mean? Well, to justify is to declare someone not guilty. It's the means that God uses in which he thinks our sins have been forgiven and we are declared just or righteous before him. Now, just to test this in plain language, let me try something out. If you were to die tonight and were to stand before God, do you think you would go to heaven? Now, a great many people, indeed, I would say that most people answer this question and say, I think I would go to heaven. But then when you ask them how they know they'd get to heaven, well, it's right here that we hear a number of very telling answers. You know, one answer is, I I have done my best, and all that God ever expects of anyone is that they should do their best. And others will say, well, I went to church and I said my prayers and I tried to keep the Ten Commandments. All of those answers are what we would call justification by works. We think we're going to be declared acceptable to God on the basis of something that we have done. But justification by faith says, I think I'm going to be acceptable before God by trusting in what Christ has done. In other words, we don't justify ourselves. God justifies us by the action of Jesus. 
Romans 8, 33-34 says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? See, to condemn is to declare someone guilty. To justify is to declare them innocent. Some time ago, I did a five-week series on Romans 1-4, to which I called the heart of the gospel. Romans 3 verse 22 speaks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the issue. Either we trust that Christ has paid our sins on our behalf on the cross, or we trust in something that we have done. Galatians 2 verse 16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to have our sins forgiven is to trust in what Jesus did on our behalf to throw ourselves without doubting on his sacrifice on the cross. Now, there's been so much misunderstanding here. Some have assumed that if that's true, it doesn't matter how we live just so long as we believe that Jesus died for us. But the Reformers and the Bible never talks that way. Remember, the Bible reminds us that if we trust in Jesus, we will consider ourselves dead to the world and dead to our own fleshly desires and trust rather in him. But doing right never saves. Trusting in the one who did right on our behalf by dying for us, that saves. Now, I know I've chosen to speak on the first two solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura and sola fide, in one setting. But that's because right here at Back to the Bible Canada, we are committed to those two principles as the very foundation of our ministry. We can think of no greater issue today than those two principles, for on those two principles hang the very souls of millions and millions of people. It took a reformation to remind us just how central these matters are. John, this is a great message, a fundamental message, and it reminds us of, you know, there was a day and time where we had Bible colleges across the country, and young people would go, and they would steep themselves in the Word of God because we believe that was fundamental to the the growth and the development of the church, but maybe not so today. Yeah, I don't think you can have a, you know, an evangelical, which is a historic Protestant Christian movement, unless we have well-informed biblicists that fill our pews and are a part of our church. If all we're ever doing is waiting for a preacher to tell us something, um, I, I think basically we've lost the entire movement. So you know, we need to recapture, remember, and do all those things that the Reformation taught us about sola scriptura, and then of course the, 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 you know, the, the center of the gospel. We need to remember that. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. A regular listener from Ontario wrote to us and said, It's absolutely refreshing to know that we have such an awesome Bible-based teacher on this side of the border. I've signed up for the daily audio mail, and words are not enough to express my genuine thanks. May Almighty God continue to bless and increase the work being done through Dr. Newfeld and the staff at Back to the Bible Canada. Well, you know, we're so grateful. Grateful for our listeners, our supporters, and the ministry that God has allowed us to participate in. If you'd like to help us sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry, find out all the free resources that can be made available to you or just discover more about Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca.